Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Have your eyes seen the glory? That's what I want to know. Have you seen what is going on in America today? Your eyes got to see the glory. Because if you don't, one day when the glory comes, it's going to be ours. So I just want to thank you very much. This is your host, Kelly Michael Williams. I thank you for joining us tonight. As I do with each and every show, I always pause and, you know, thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just for allowing me to host this show, just for allowing me to have this platform, because... So often I, I 
see what's going on, I hear what's going on, and I always ask myself or wonder, where do we stand and where do we sit in this this game? Because it really is a game. If we don't realize and understand that politics is a game that we need to learn how to play and play well, it uh, it causes us to to fall short, as we typically do and have done uh, over the years quite often. We've fallen short because we've looked at this game called politics as just a voting game. We looked at it as just something where we show up every presidential election and we vote. But we have not paid attention always to those midterm elections, as we call them, the ones that come in the off-presidential years and the ones that really resonate locally in our city councils, in our state legislators, in our county courthouses, in our county sheriff's uh, offices and places like that, where we don't pay attention to the things that are locally impacting us. Uh, we always focus on the presidential election as African-Americans and only recently have it has it resonated in our mind in 2018 that the midterms are the reason why we've lost so many state houses and why we have voter ID laws and why we have, um, uh, you know, uh, reproductive rights being uh, uh, rolled back and why we have federal judges on these benches that have never tried a case and never written a brief and don't even know their room around a courtroom, their way around a courtroom, but yet they're sitting on the federal bench and they're there for life and they're 40 years old. So through my lifetime, through your children's lifetime, they're going to be impacting laws. They're going to affect you and continually to affect you for the rest of your life, your children's life, and the lives of your grandchildren. Because those laws never come off the book. And what we always forget about is the fact that, yes, state legislators and and city council members and mayors and governors pass laws and, and, and you know, uh, congressional members and, and U.S. senators, they pass laws. But those laws don't die when they leave office. Those laws stay on the books and they stay right there and they don't go anywhere until someone repeals that law, until someone changes that law. And I don't think we understand and recognize who that someone is that actually does that. Because, yeah, the legislature can do that. But the entity that does that the most is the courts. The federal courts are the ones who typically and usually overturn laws and change laws or amend laws because people decide to fight the law. And when they fight the law, it usually gets to the Supreme Court. And that law can either be changed, a new law can be implemented, or whatever the case may be. And so I think we need to understand why this game of politics is so important, why this game that we have to play vigilantly is so important, and why we have to recognize that everything, everything starts at our local level, starts at our city and county levels. And tonight, it's going back to the county because here comes the sheriff. Oh, yeah. Tonight, I'm excited as I am every time he comes on my broadcast and every time that we have an opportunity to talk and, and share uh, insight and intellect and, you know, just banter and just have a good time here on the broadcast is my man, 80 grand, because he's one of eight. You know, you used to back in the day, we say 50 grand, my man, 50 grand. But now nah, this is my man, 80 grand. He is Sheriff Clarence Burkhead out of Durham, North Carolina, the first 
African-American elected sheriff in Durham's history, county sheriff in Durham's history. And I am honored, privileged, proud, happy. You know, I'm not old enough to have one of those sayings about, you know, a, a pig with, with fat or whatever else it is on it. But uh, I'm ecstatic anyway. You know, if, if I was a cat, you can roll me over and tickle my tummy, you know, or whatever it is. I, I don't know. But whatever it is, that's how excited I get when I get Sheriff Burkhead on the line. So it is exciting to me to have him because he's got a whole lot going on in North Carolina tonight. He's got Trump in North Carolina. He's got a, a, a special election tomorrow. He had Dorian come by and, you know, tear up the, the outer banks and everything. But uh, so much is going on, Sheriff. How you doing? Welcome to the show. Uh, good evening. Good evening, sir. We're doing fine here. Always a pleasure to be here. But you're absolutely right. We we have a lot going on here in the great state of North Carolina, but it's always a pleasure for me to take time out and be with you and your listening audience. And we have lots to talk about, as you said. Yes, we do. And we appreciate it because uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, we'll get people who will call in. And a lot of times, uh, as I know, most folks don't want to call in. What they do is they'll text or tweet me later or they'll send something on um, Facebook or something like that. And they'll say something, and, and it's always funny to me. I'm like, well, why didn't you just call in and say that? And that's usually because they don't either if, – if they're on the wrong side of the equation, they don't want to get chewed out. And if they're on the right side, they're embarrassed because they might think it's a bad question or something like that. But let's talk about all the stuff that's going on in North Carolina. You got Trump there tonight out there for the special election trying to rally the, the – and, and I'm be you know, there's a lot of things that I don't want you to say that I want to say for you, but these crooked Republicans – I mean, it's amazing to me how they are always talking about Democrats, Democrats, Democrats are the ones that are, are, are voter fraud. Everything is voter fraud to Democrats. But the Republicans are always the one getting caught up in it. And although I try to be nonpartisan with a whole lot of issues, I like to call it out the way I like to see it. I mean, not the way I like to see it, but the way I see it. They ramroded this District 9 race a year, a year ago blatantly blatantly illegally did everything they could until the son of the candidate who happened to be a federal attorney a state's attorney had to come in and say i told my dad not to do that he did it anyway right and call him out to then having the the uh, candidate then say oh well i didn't really know and that just irks me to no end What's the, the, the mood out there? I know it's not necessarily in your district, but what's the mood just across the state of, of what's going on and what has been going on for years, especially when you're talking about suppressing the black vote in North Carolina? Well, you raise a, a very good point, and, I, and I'm going to take a different approach. I think the, the atmosphere and the mood is pretty high right now, pretty positive in North Carolina. You know, the uh, courts have issued a, uh, an order to redistrict and uh, have ruled the current maps unconstitutional and have certainly slanted the vote to one side. Uh, so uh, that decision was handed down a, a week or so ago. So that's got a lot of excitement yes, exactly. throughout, uh, throughout the state. So the mood is pretty high. And, and you've already mentioned that the special election has taken place uh, here in the ninth, I think it's the ninth uh, uh, district. Uh, that's going to be exciting to watch. Uh, I know people have already been early voting. Even with Dorian coming down our coastline, uh, people were 
uh, eager to get out and vote in this special election. So I think uh, North Carolina is poised to, to make a statement and hopefully uh, moving forward can make a dif- difference here in our state uh, uh, legislative uh, general assembly uh, and then looking toward 2020 as well. I'm excited as well, and I'm glad you made that reference because when I got the the email uh, and the tweet about the uh, court overturning the the, um, the district lines and they, they are ordering a redistricting, I thought that was a huge victory for North Carolina uh, North Carolinians um, to be able to get a fair and equitable uh, proportion of the of the uh, electorate out there. And the lines being drawn proportionately and 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 fairly, uh, even in a, a a state that is really not as red as people believe it is, because the the thing that got me was that it was the the lines the the state drawn boundary lines that have been turning the tables against um, not only members of Congress, <clears throat> but I think some of your state legislators as well. Because even in the last election in 2018, uh, progressive Democrats actually voted more, had more votes than the Republicans, but they were only able to pick up like three seats or four seats compared to the nine that the Republicans either held on to or picked up uh, because of the districting, uh, because of the, uh, the, the lines drawn on the, on the, uh, uh, throughout the state. So those things are exciting to me to know that people are energized. They're not waiting for something to happen. They're actually taking it to, uh, as we say, taking it to the polls to make something happen. Uh, that's that's that that's what you're what I'm hearing you saying to me. That that is correct. That is that is absolutely what's going on. Uh, and again, that was a, a very uh, historic and a great decision that was handed down by the courts. And it, it does. It really does have people energized. Uh, certainly. You've already alluded to the fact that uh, that was a big news story, uh, mm-hmm. uh, voter tampering and, and things that went on and, and that, that are called, uh, caused this special election. Uh, so, again, I think uh, North Carolinians are not asleep at the wheel. We are fired up and ready to go, as we often say here in North Carolina. Exactly. And, and I'm, I'm not I don't believe that um, Trump's presence will will do that much um to what is like really felt on the ground, because I think a lot of people just turn out to show out as they do probably for any president, just to, just to see them or to see air force one or to, to see, you know, who's going to be there and things of that nature. But I don't know that it's going to help as it didn't help in 2018 to get them over the hump. I don't think it helped now, but let's talk about some of the, some of the other things. Now, how is Dorian, how is that, you know, um, you know, hit the the state, and I know it's not in your district, but what's the mood there for that, and, and how are things moving along, uh, just in terms of uh, recovery and and rebuilding nature, and, and where where are you guys moving now? Well, yes, uh, our coastline, uh, particularly in our um, Carteret County or Emerald Isle area, going up toward the Outer Banks, uh, we're hit pretty hard. Uh, we we've been in contact with other sheriffs in, in those jurisdictions, and uh, they're holding their own right now. But we stand at the ready to to assist them. Uh, so now that Dorian has moved out of the Carolinas, uh, we're going to do whatever we can to assist with that recovery. Uh, I toured the shelter that we opened here in Durham 
uh, along with the governor last week, and, and that was a phenomenal experience being able to get this shelter up and running uh, in short order. Our state of North Carolina, our emergency management, uh, did a fantastic job setting it up, and, and we had uh, several evacuees in the shelter for the last few days, uh, but happy to say that, that we're moving forward with a, hopefully a quick recovery, at least we can get some folks back back to the area and uh, start surveying the damage. So, But here in Durham, uh, we got just a little bit of rain and a little bit of wind, so we were, we were spared uh, the brunt of Dorian, and thankfully now it's, it's moved well off the coast and headed out, out to sea. Right, right. So now let's talk about the things that you have going on because you got a whole lot going on. The last time we talked, uh, you were in the uh, infancy stage of starting and, and promoting and produ- uh, uh, publicizing your uh, community uh, advisory board. Uh, talk to me about what's going on there. I know you've started it. I know it's out there and it's going on until this, uh, the 15th of this month. But uh, talk to me about how it's going and how it was received. Well, so far it's been a, a great response. We have uh, somewhere between 35 and, and uh, 45 applications already. Uh, we're going to receive those applications uh, to be a member of the Sheriff's Community Advisory Board until the end of of this month until the end of September, then we will uh, hopefully have our first uh, meeting uh, early November. Uh, there's some checks that we have to do for make sure that everyone is who they say they are, uh, but we're right. excited. Uh, the public response has been incredible. Um, people are asking the, how they can get involved. Uh, with the board and how can they be members and, and really asking a lot of questions. So um, we're excited to, to get it together and looking forward to having our first meeting. As you know, we're going to be meeting on a quarterly basis, talking about issues that impact communities all across Durham County. Uh, this is one of my campaign promises, uh, delivering on continuing to stay engaged with the community. And what better way than to have representatives from each and every community uh, across Durham County sitting at the table with the sheriff talking about the issues that they see day in and day out and helping us uh, get a handle on the issues that they they deal with. Because my deputies can't be everywhere. I can't be everywhere. So I want to engage the community and get them involved in uh, reporting crime and looking for solutions and, and just addressing quality of life issue. So very excited about this first ever Sheriff's Community Advisory Board. And how many people are you going to have on the advisory board? Uh, I know you were, I think you were discussing uh, a, a number that was going to increase, but what, what did you guys finalize and, and what's the process for those folks to, to uh, become uh, community advisors? We've settled on 25. We think 25 will give us a good uh, <clears throat> cross-section representation uh, from, uh, like I said, all over Durham County. Uh, And the application process is very simple. They can go to the uh, Durham County Sheriff's Office website and click on community. And the the application form is in a drop-down menu. They can fill that out, mail it in, or they can email it right back uh, to Ms. Grace Marsh, who's my director of community engagement. Then there's going to be a a screening process, and then I will – in conjunction with my staff, we'll make the selection. These individuals who uh, will be selected will serve a two-year term, 
in volunteering to be on the community advisory board. We will put them through our Citizens Academy that we've had in place here for a number of years so they can understand what we do here at the Sheriff's Office. Uh, and then we'll start having some substantive conversations about how we can make Durham uh, as safe and inclusive of all of our uh, all of our groups here in uh, in Durham County. That sounds excellent, excellent. And I'm excited the fact that uh, the the first ever gets started under you, the first ever. So it's 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 nice to have uh, things that get started under uh, new administrations and new regimes coming about because we always thinking outside the box and we're thinking about the community and what's happening around us as opposed to always just thinking, you know, uh, in a box and, and being not so much uh, willing to change and be open to different suggestions and different ideas. So I commend you for that. Uh, as I always do, I always, I always like hearing from you and talking to you about the things that you're thinking in your vision because you don't like to keep things, you know, just, you know, uh, um, you know, easy peasy, as you will, or just, you know, simple. Right. You like to be bold. You like to be bold. And I like that. I like that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no status quo here. And, and exactly. I think it's important that I mention, I mention here so our listeners will understand, again, this is not me going into communities trying to dictate to them how they should be living and what they should be doing. No, this is me inviting them to sit at the table and, and share with uh, with me and, and my staff on, on what we can do better to, to serve them and, and make our community safe. It's also important, this board will have formerly uh, incarcerated members or criminal justice involved uh, folks on the board as well, because again, they have lived the experience and they bring a totally different perspective uh, to the conversation of combating crime or uh, dealing with uh, nuisances in the community. And I want to engage that population just as much as I want to engage our faith-based organizations, our youth, our millennial population. Uh, so again, this, that's how we came to the number 25, so we can make sure we have broad representation in this in this uh, board moving forward. And I like the fact that you brought this up now as opposed to waiting for an incident to happen, the community be coming in an uproar, and then saying, oh, well, we'll put together a community organization as in the case, as in most cases, how that happens, especially in our city, our local um, police departments, an issue happens in the black community, and then they decide, oh, we're going to put together a community advisory board, but then that advisory board really has no power, no say, or anything else of that nature. But you started this out from the beginning, and you, like you said, you invited them in. It wasn't like they came demanding and, and beating on the door because there was an issue that you didn't address. You said, I'm going to nip this in the bud and I'm going to get on the front end so that I can make sure that we don't have those issues and that my officers and my deputies are doing what they're supposed to do in the community, but the community will trust us and we can trust the community. And we are now having an open dialogue about what's going on. And that's, I mean, that right there is, is beyond the pale of what most law enforcement agencies do. So like I said, I mean, I'll probably say another 10 times tonight, but I commend you on that because- that's forward thinking about what your responsibility is and the responsibility that you're going to take on, not just to lock everybody up, but to keep everybody safe so they don't have to get locked up or to keep them safe before 
they get locked up or doing things like that before the crimes actually happen, trying to do something preventative. And, and, and that's, that's, that's excellent. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. My goal and our goal here at the sheriff's office is to be as proactive as we can possibly be. And this is certainly a step uh, in that direction. Uh, We, we want to build relationships across our our communities uh, and our black and our Brown communities, uh, our our LGBTQ community. uh, And you're right. I want to have these conversations while the weather is calm, so to speak, to use a Dorian reference, but but also be prepared that when something does happen, they know that they can come and talk to the sheriff, and we've already established open lines of communication, and hopefully that will uh, allow us to to talk through some of the issues because issues will occur, things will happen, uh, but this is a way of us establishing those relationships so we can at least know that we're talking with someone that we've sat at the table with and we're going to work on these issues together whenever they come up and whatever they may be. So we're, we're very excited about it here at the, at the sheriff's office. Right. It's establishing that trust level so that they can actually trust law enforcement and, and, you know, being there and, and looking out for them, not so much coming after them, but being there looking out for them. So that's, that's great. We're going to take a quick break share. And when I come back, I want to find out, and hopefully you watched some of it as I did, uh, Dateline with Lester Holt last night. I, I want to talk about that, the incarceration and how the, the, the mood has changed or how it may be shifting uh, compared to where it's always been for the last 15 or 20 years. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Honey, put this on top of the minivan. We're only going for two weeks. You want me to back the kitchen sink, too? Well, is there room? Hey, you guys, you going on vacation? Who's that? I don't know. Because we're planning on robbing your house tonight. All right, I'm calling an alarm service. Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. There's a simple blood test called A1C that can help measure your risk of complications from diabetes. Why is it important? Because more than 600 people every day die from diabetes and its complications. If your A1C is above 7, your doctor can show you how to lower it. If you have diabetes, know your risk. Know your A1C. Ask your doctor, or for more information, go to www.diabetesa1c.org or call 1-877-TEST-A1C. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. The bare necessities of healthy living are easier than you think. You better believe it. It all starts with the right balance of being active and eating well. You eat air? You're going to love the way they tickle. And the food pyramid shows you the way. With just the right amount of exercise and the necessary grains, vegetables, fruits, milk, and meats and beans to keep you and your family on a path to good health. Just the bare necessities of life. Just remember, every food group every day. Crazy. Start by taking small steps. Steps that add up to a happier, healthier life. Try making half your grains whole. Or start adding fruit to breakfast. Me and Baloo, we've got things to do. So eat right. Have a banana. Be active. I'll move. That's it. And have lots of fun. Yeah, man. For your own path to a healthier you, visit MyPyramid.gov. Oh, man. This is really living. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Ag Council. You're listening to Black Politics Today.
an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. We'll take your calls as you come on. Welcome back to the show. Uh, uh, our host, our guest tonight, I'm your host, our guest tonight is uh, Sheriff Clarence Burkhead from Durham, North Carolina, the first African-American elected for Durham. Uh, how many years? Uh, what's what's the annexation of Durham, uh, Sheriff Burkett? It's been what? Uh, was it a hundred years? Hundred and something years? Uh, uh almost one hundred and forty. It's one hundred and thirty-nine years. <clears throat> one hundred and thirty-nine years. Is, yep. And the sheriff's office is the oldest uh, constitutionally elected official uh, in the county. Actually, before there was a county of Durham, there was a sheriff. Wow. 140 years, and we have the first African-American in 2018. And as soon as he got elected, everybody, they tried to take his powers away from him. As soon as he got elected. Because he didn't want to volunteer his services and his people to do what the federal government was supposed to do. And it was a volunteer program. And they got mad at him. So they tried to take his powers. I was sitting on a panel, Sheriff, um, about three weeks ago, and I was sitting next to uh, uh, Prince George's County Sheriff, um, and I can't recall his name right now, um, but an uh, African-American. <clears throat> he had been sheriff for a, a number of years, but um, when I mentioned to them uh, how excited I was sitting next to him, and I referenced you and the other seven, uh, and talked about the the constitutionality of the office and the the you know the the remnants of of the old South and and how the sheriff controlled the county and everything they did and how they ruled with the iron fists, especially us. Uh, a lot of people were surprised and didn't know that. And I remember when you and I first talked and uh, we had McFadden on the line uh, down in uh, from Charlottesville. Uh, not Charlottesville, from um, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, Mecklenburg County, and how the two of you were talking about the the constitutionality of the sheriff and its powers mm-hmm. and, and what it means, because I remember you correcting someone saying, well, we're not a department, we're an office. We're the sheriff's office. Correct. We're not the police That's department. Right. And so there's a difference even in that simplicity of term, office compared to department, and what the roles are and what the responsibilities are. And it's uh, so great and intriguing, which brings me into the issue of HB uh, 370. And thank God the governor vetoed it. Uh, But talk to us about HB 370 for the listeners who don't know 
and what that bill was attempting to do and how it was attempting to impact your service as uh, the constitutionally elected sheriff. So because the, the people are your boss. You don't have a mayor or, or somebody else that's your boss, like a, a police chief or a county administrator. Um, the people are your boss. And the legislature is trying to undo what the people wanted to do, ironically, when they say that the Congress shouldn't be trying to impeach what the people tried to do or what the people did in 16, they shouldn't do anything like that. But here, the North Carolina state uh, uh, um, legislature was trying to do just that. Talk to us about 370. Yeah, 370, uh, as you've already articulated, was, was an attempt, and the bill was titled uh, House Bill 370, requiring sheriffs to cooperate with um, uh, ICE uh, detainers or or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, And you've mentioned that's a federal responsibility. Immigration is a federal law, civil and criminal. Uh, But this bill attempted to uh, require sheriffs in North Carolina to participate, whether they uh, agree with the policies or philosophies or not. Uh, And since it's not mandated for us to do it, there's no federal mandate. It's a voluntary program, as you mentioned. Uh, The only way they could uh, get us to cooperate was to pass a law. Fortunately, uh, the governor did veto that. Uh, We had several conversations, uh, myself and my other uh, colleagues across the state of North Carolina, had several conversations with, with Governor Cooper, and he uh, vetoed it, and he, his statement was profound. This is unconstitutional to try to erode the power and authority of the office of the sheriff. has never been done before in the history of North Carolina, uh, and he's not going to let it happen on his watch. So we're very proud to stand with the governor and happy that he vetoed that bill. Uh, and now hopefully we can move on. I know Senator Tillis has filed a a sort of a campaign bill or a sister bill in uh, in the Senate, but we're um, we're hopeful that that will not get very far. And everything I'm being told coming out of D.C. is it's not going to get a lot of traction. So uh, again, we we just want to serve the the residents that live in our community. And House Bill 370 would have prevented us from building those relationships, particularly with our Latinx community. Uh, and so hopefully we put that in our rearview mirror and we can we can move on to bigger and better things here in North Carolina. And, and focus on what's really important and, and the issues and areas, because one of the things uh, that HB uh, 370 did was require you to actually hold someone or detain them beyond the time that they were actually legally allowed to be detained. Uh, and, and, and talk to us about that so that people understand that they were actually trying to require you to break the law in order to serve their own political purposes for a new law. Yeah, that is correct. And and all of my research uh, and, the, and the research of my legal team, uh, that's unconstitutional. And just to, to make it as simple as possible, anytime I take someone into custody and I arrest them, that arrest uh, must be founded uh, on in probable cause. And the detainer is not founded in probable cause. It's, it's a federal civil request for me to hold someone 
but if I do that and I hold them past the time that they uh, could have been released or should have been released uh, by a, a judicial official, then that constitutes a new arrest. So that's uh, unlawful imprisonment, and I'm breaking the law. I'm violating their Fourth Amendment, and uh, I'm just not going to do that. And all the, the research that I've done uh, says that uh, a detainer amounts to a new arrest and therefore must be uh, rooted in probable cause. So I'm, I'm simply following the law as my colleagues across the state of North Carolina are doing. Uh, they like to say that we're breaking the law but not cooperating with ICE, and that's just not the case. I just choose not to lock up someone if they haven't broken the laws of, of North Carolina, and without probable cause, I'm certainly not going to do that. So and, it's, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bad deal. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that because you you touched on something that that although I I I know that I've heard it I I realize it but it just really resonated with me this time around when you said it because it made me think about other times and in other cases when shares did cooperate and did comply and did do that and I'm thinking of it from the standpoint of who they were doing it to, and because they may not have known it was illegal or because they may not have had the resources to fight it, they ended up being detained beyond the time and possibly even picked up by ICE and deported. But for that period of time that they were there, it was unlawful for them to be there. It was unlawful for them to be detained like that without a lawful arrest. And it's just stunning to me that it's resonating with me at this point because it, it you know, I've heard it, I, I know it, and, and coming out of law enforcement, realizing it. But until right now, when you said it, it did not click. It's one of those things that you hear so many times, and all of a sudden that light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm listening now, and I'm hearing something that although I heard it before, it didn't resonate with me because it was just all about, oh, yeah, I know that. But now when I think about it in the context of individuals who it's actually happening to, it says to me that this could have been going on beforehand, and those individuals, because they didn't know the law or have the resources to fight it, could have been locked up illegally, held without any probable cause, sitting in your county jail, and then getting picked up days after their 48-hour time frame had expired whenever ICE got there, and they could, I mean, that could be going on all over the country. You're, you're absolutely correct, and, and it has been going on, unfortunately, and you mentioned it. These individuals who are being targeted by ICE don't have the resources. Uh, their families don't have the resources. They don't understand uh, the system well enough to navigate it and, and and, and get an immigration attorney and have someone to fight for them. Uh, it's very unfortunate situation. So it, it, perhaps to, to not have someone come to your aid. And, and listen, listen, uh, we've had several uh, reports of individuals who were U.S. citizens who just got caught up in some exactly. of these raids and, and were held exactly. for days. Uh, again, it's just uh, – it, it's a terrible situation. Look, none of us want illegal immigration, but what I want is true immigration reform, and right. that's the responsibility of our, our United States 
Congress, uh, not the local sheriffs. If we want to fix this problem, we have to fix our national uh, immigration policy and not force uh, our local sheriffs and, and chiefs of police to engage in what I consider to be um, illegal activity. Exactly, exactly. So, and 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 I mean, it's just wow. That that just hit me like like a a, a ton of bricks. I'm like, wait a minute. Let me think about this for a minute. So. If you had the opportunity to to see Dateline last night, Lester Holt did a, a, a show and series on uh, incarceration and the the length and time of incarceration for so many people. And he was in Louisiana, and so there was a lot of youth. Uh, I guess they're called teen lifers. So a lot of folks who committed a crime as a teenager got life without possibility of parole and been in years. In, in prison for like 60, 70 years. One guy was 78 years old going up for parole. Another guy was uh, 72 and things like that. But they were talking about the idea of uh, the uh, prison system being one of, of punishment and not rehabilitation any longer and how, excuse me, through these private prisons, we're looking at paying for, um, you know, there's there's a profit to be made for being locked up. And I'm thinking back to the the judge in Pennsylvania who was uh, indicted, convicted, now spending like 60 years in prison or 30 years in prison for mm-hmm. uh, basically uh, uh, being the go-between to make sure that he put enough people in jail or into these detention centers, these kids actually into these detention centers so they can get a kickback. What um what is your feeling on the 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 issue of of the the profit for prison or prison profits and and how that's impacting especially the African American community and the majority or you know more African Americans are being locked up and for longer sentences and they're being done and that's being done to profit the people who are sitting there who are detaining them. Well, unfortunately, uh, and you've you've touched on an issue that we've been dealing with. We in law enforcement have been dealing with for for ages, for years. Uh, incarceration is a big business, and um, I saw I saw some of the uh, the Justice for All uh, piece by with Lester last night. Uh, that was at um, Angola Maximum Security Prison in Louisiana. Right, right, exactly. It, yeah. And, and we know that there are young men who went in there at, at age 17, and, and now they're 57, 47, 67. And, uh, you know, again, generations are being lost through incarcerations. And some of them were in, uh, in, in prison for minor drug offenses, which, again, exactly. makes no sense. It didn't make sense to me 30 years ago. 35 years ago when I got into business, and it doesn't make sense today. We have to find a way to reform our criminal justice system. Uh, the piece that, that Lester Holt did last night, I hope, will bring some light to to the injustice of our incarceration. And listen, I, I'm a law enforcement officer. If you break the law, you commit a crime, uh, you need to be held accountable. And there are a number of ways we can do that. Uh, certainly incarceration is one of them, but we're looking at restorative justice practices now, uh, alternatives to incarceration. So there's a lot that we can do to not end the life of someone who makes a mistake, but give them an opportunity to start a new life. 
I'm so proud of the work that Brian Stevenson has done. If you haven't read his book, Just Mercy, it's one of my favorite, but it talks about the years and years of our uh, uh, our criminal justice system uh, locking up young men and young women and, and ending lives and how we need to stand strong for reform and correct some of the wrongs that have been done over the years. Yeah, and, it was a powerful – A lot of money at stake. It, it and that was the thing. I mean, it was a powerful piece, but what also um, surprised me to a certain extent, not a great extent, was that, like you said, many people in the law enforcement community are like, "Hey, we're doing ourselves a disservice by just locking people up and throwing away the key and not trying to rehabilitate them, because eventually, when they come out, how they come, <clears throat> how they come out of here." It's what you're going to experience, but also the amount of money it costs the states to, you know, hold these individuals, especially when you're talking about minor drug offenses. And they're getting, I mean, one of the guys had a a drug offense and they charged him as a trafficker and they gave him life. And uh, no, they gave him 150 years. They gave him 150 years. He was 17 years old at the time or 17 or 16 years old at the time, he had 150 years for, for drugs. And, and now, (laughs) you know, now it's a crisis and we want to do treatment. But when it was African-Americans, it, you know, it was, it was a, you know, criminal enterprise and, you know, you, you got 150 years and it's just amazing to me how, you know, the tables have turned, but the impact that you talk about, on communities and on generations and how that is. And I think one of the guys, one of the men that they interviewed, his father, I guess, had gotten executed. His father was executed when he was like 10 years old or something like that. And he actually, I don't know if he actually witnessed it or saw it, but there was a photo of him just prior to his father's execution that they showed and which led me to believe that he was, you know, somewhere realizing and understanding that his father was being executed in prison for that. And then he ultimately ended up in Angola in the same prison that his father was in doing life. Right. And it was just, That's right. it, it's, it's such an impact of what we have uh, to deal with and think about and why uh, our system of justice, you know, like you said, needs to be reformed in, in, in a number of fashions. I come from a law enforcement family, which I've told you and shared. My father, my brother, and myself mm-hmm. all were in law enforcement. And like you said, mm-hmm. if you do a crime, I'm all for you doing being held accountable. But at right. the same time, how and what level of accountability or, or, or the measure of the crime to the accountability is always what we always talk about. Does does the punishment fit the crime? You know, That's is, right. are, are, are the results of the crime I mean, the results of the punishment for the crime going to then deter them from doing it again, or is it just going to make them more incentivize them more to actually do it because they're so angry at the system that they don't really care. And so therefore I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway. That's right. And we know we have all the evidence that substantiates the claim that we cannot arrest ourselves out of the ills uh, in this country, we cannot do it. Uh, it has, and 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 I don't want to throw out a lot of statistics, but you know we're 
we are in advance. Come out, uh, do country. it, <laughs> so <laughs> we can understand the, we, the magnitude of them. <laughs> we we incarcerate more people than any other uh, country in the world, and 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 but we're only like one fifth of the world population. It, it's amazing to me that we lock up so many uh, young men and, and young women. Uh, between the age of 18 and, and 35, and and you mentioned it's the generational. So if your father or my father gets locked up or incarcerated, the likelihood of us being incarcerated is is increased exponentially. And that's what Absolutely. we saw. We saw some of those interviews last night that yeah. a young man at a young age, his father got locked up, and at 16. He got locked up, and so now we—it's just this cycle of incarceration that we we have not been able to break for years, and and, and we have to. Uh, like I say, I, I am all for criminal justice reform uh, because we're we're ruining lives and we're losing a generation of of uh, men and women to to who are being incarcerated. Like you said, 150 years for for drug offenses, where in some states right now that same offense is is now legal. So we we've got some work to do. Oh, and, and and that's the thing. And and I was I was excited, or um, and I shouldn't say excited, but I was I was pleased to hear that um, for some of them who had been locked up as juveniles, they were able to win. Uh, I think it was uh, Thomas or Davis, one of the inmates, filed a lawsuit and was able to win uh, again. What I said earlier, taking things to the courts and going through the courts, and they actually got to the Supreme Court. And they overturned a law that now allowed him to now uh, be paroled because he was facing life without possibility of parole. So when they became teen lifers, now that law has been overturned, um, at least in the state of Louisiana, to be able to allow them to actually be paroled. So some of those things are are, are turning now, and, and we're able to see that things are are, are at least – the the, the the wheels are turning to, to try to reverse some of these things that are happening because punishment never worked. They had rehabilitation for a number of years, which actually right. worked. And I remember in California, we had mm-hmm. what we called a joint venture program where the inmate worked, got paid a living wage for whatever company or business that they were working for. One third of that money went to pay restitution to their victim, another third went to the um, to the state, uh, and then in the last third they kept for their commissary and for their money. So that when they got out, they actually had a savings account. So when they got out, they can, you know, be able to get, you know, an apartment or or have money for food or whatever the case may be. And that program worked for years. I don't know where it stands now, but that joint mm-hmm. venture program was where you brought private businesses into the prisons. They worked, they paid them $20 an hour, whatever their going rage was, and they worked, and they worked their way out of prison. They were literally able to work their way out of prison, and once they got out of prison, they went to work for that company uh, as a a tenured employee, where now they're paying taxes, and, you know, they're getting health benefits or whatever the case may be. They got a retirement program, and they didn't recidivate, you know, they didn't come back. So those programs work when you actually get someone uh, able to get into them and, and believe in what they're doing, and they're able to do it. But when you're just talking about punishment, you're just making bigger, badder criminals. 
That's right. That's, that's what we're manufacturing new criminals with, uh, as you said earlier, uh, they're either angry or, and they come out and they go back to the same conditions or worse uh, before they, they, before they went in. And I'm happy to say that here in, in Durham, uh, Durham, North Carolina, Durham County, we have a lot of resources. We're, we're working on some restorative justice pro- projects here. Uh, it starts in, in my facility, uh, all of my detention officers are trained in direct supervision, interacting with uh, the, the detainees and building those social skills. So uh, hopefully preparing them for when they come back out into the community, they can uh, uh, have an easier transition and then connecting them with the resources because that's what they need uh, when they are released. They need resources, whether it's housing or right. medication to deal with exactly. an addiction or a mental health issue. So we're we're partnering with both public and private entities to 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 develop those wraparound services. So when they when they are released, their their likelihood of going back into the system is greatly reduced. So uh, we're trying to make a difference here, uh, and it's a obviously it's a nationwide problem, and we've got a lot of work to do. And just like you said, the wheels of justice turn slow and the wheels of reform turn even slower, but, but we cannot give up. We've, we've got work to do. Well, Cher, before I let you go, uh, really, what's what's next on the horizon for you? What What is your next uh, project you're looking at doing besides the one you just mentioned? Uh, what's next? Mm-hmm. What's the next uh, big vision that you have for Durham County and, and, and your department and your community? Well, uh, one of the things we're, we're working on right now, unfortunately, on the heels of some of the gun violence that I'm, that I'm sure you've heard about here uh, nationally, it's, uh, unfortunately, uh, some of it made national news where you know, a nine-year-old was caught in the crossfire. Of right, gun caught in the crossfire, and, exactly. Yeah, and, and I've, I've simply said enough is enough. Uh, how many more mothers have to bury their, their children or how many more fathers do we have to lose and enough is enough? So we've just launched... Uh, the Sheriff's Targeted Enforcement Program, or STEP, uh, because I don't want to just go out and start indiscriminately arresting people. We know who these individuals are. We're working with uh, state, local, and federal officials. We're going to identify them. Uh, And again, like I said, if you commit a crime, we're going to find you and hold you accountable. So this STEP program has a lot of community support uh, because I want to be uh, very aggressive in getting these guns off our streets and putting these individuals behind bars who are uh, create uh, committing these violent crimes. And again, when people hear me, well, they say, Sheriff, you not you just said you weren't going to lock people up. No, I didn't say that. I'm going to lock those up who are terrorizing our neighborhoods. Uh, I had right, a lady right. come to me. Those who need to be locked up, we're going to lock up. We're going to lock up. I had a lady come to me. We were we were at a vigil, and she said, Sheriff, I just cannot keep sleeping on my floor because my bed is next to the window, and I don't know when a gunshot or a stray bullet's going to come in. Or a lady told me she fell, and she heard the gunshot. She fell and, and injured her shoulder, and she said, I can't live like this anymore, Sheriff, so uh, please do something in, in, in my community. And these people have lived in these communities for years, for generations, and we want to – uh, make them as safe as possible. So STEP is underway. We've got a lot of support, uh, like I said, at, the, at the, the federal level as well, working with the Safe Streets Task Force. 
So we're again, it's all about making our community safe and and building that trust and those relationships in, uh, in our community. So uh, we're excited about that. Well, I'm excited for you, Sheriff, and I, I, I can't wait. I got about 72 hours before I see you again up here um, for the It's About Us uh, Congressional Black Caucus Award Ceremony, and I am just tickle pink and honored to just be able to honor you for what you have done and what you are doing down there in Durham, North Carolina, and I want everyone to know who's listening, and especially your listeners there, that uh, in just a, a, a small search of just things that I was looking for. I fell upon this man and, and the rest of North Carolina uh, about all eight of you doing what you did. And, you know, I'm going to come up with another name for you guys. That's going to stick in one point of time or another. I'm going to try to get all eight of you up here to DC, maybe next year uh, for our, our, our uh, annual uh, reception. But I'm going to make sure that people know that we are honoring Sheriff Clarence Burkhead of North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, this Thursday uh, at the South African Embassy uh, during the It's About Us uh, Congressional Black Caucus Awards reception sponsored by Black Politics Today. It's About Us and a number of our affiliates, uh, Bonner Dental Network, uh, Covenant House, and a few others that are uh, helping sponsor this event to, to make sure that we honor the people who are leading in our community, who are trailblazing in our community, and who are creating legacies and are champions in our community. And Sheriff Burkhead, you are one of those individuals. So I want to make sure that everyone knows that we are honoring you. And certainly when we do this press release, we'll certainly have that in there and let them know. And we'll certainly make sure that North Carolina gets it and Durham gets it so that uh, they can feature you, honor you. And if they can get somebody up here, uh, get some pictures or whatever, we'll get some for them and send it back to them. But either way, we want to make sure that everyone knows that we're honoring you because you deserve the honor. You've done a great uh, service. You've been in the law enforcement for over 30 years and to become the first African-American in over 140 years of the county's existence. And even before the county had an existence, there was a sheriff there and you being the first African-American. Uh, it's a proud day for Durham. It's a proud day for me just being African-American. And I know your family's excited and proud of you. Uh, I know your community is. And when I came to visit you, everyone in the sheriff's department seemed to be excited about you, man. So it's like, I mean, anyone who wins their election by 91%, they better be happy for it. Cause you know what? You got enough power and clout to write a check that the bank will bounce. So I tell you, you go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. Keep having that broad vision, sir. And I just, I just commend you. I'm excited to see you. Cannot wait to see you when you get here and leave us with what's at stake for us. Because, you know, on the happy note, there's serious things that are coming about. What's at stake for us as a community, uh, uh, as African-Americans, but also for your people there in Durham, what's at stake? Well, thank you. Yeah, very quickly, I'm I'm humbled uh, by the honor and the recognition that that Black Politics Today uh, is bestowing on me, and I'm looking forward to to coming to D.C. and hanging out. So, thank you for that. Uh, truly humbled by it. But what's at stake? Uh, our neighborhoods. Our neighborhoods are at stake. Our 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 children are at stake. Uh, whether it be gun violence or poverty. Uh, or just policies that are not aligned with uh, the prosperity of the black and brown community. Uh, so as I always say, and I know you echo this, 
we have to vote. We have to get involved. We have to engage at, at the grassroots level. Uh, you mentioned this at the start of the show. Local politics is extremely important. Yeah, we have a presidential election coming up. Absolutely, that's important. But all politics is local politics, and it begins right here in Durham. So uh, we have a lot at stake. So let's hope that the people here in Durham and beyond will continue to be involved and be engaged as we try to make a difference uh, from my office here in Durham County. We just try to make a difference and make life better for all of us. So thank you once again for having me on. Looking looking forward to spending time with you uh, in D.C. this weekend. Well, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to it as well and, and cannot wait to, to have you join us and, and be a part of the, the celebration as well as uh, all that we're going to be trying to do and announce and uh, kick off and do a number of things. So there's going to be a, a great welcome reception for you when you get here. So uh, we can't wait to see you. Um, I just tell you, everyone, there's there's always something at stake. There's always something going on. There's always something we need to be uh, aware of and pay attention to. And like I said in the beginning, Voting isn't the only thing you have to do. You always have to be aware of what the public policies are that are being passed in your city council and your state legislature, right? And even in Congress, but most importantly, those city councils and state legislatures. You have to be involved in those midterm elections and those special elections and all the different times. They told you you can get a million dollars every time you came back to vote. I'm sure you would do it. But let me put it to you this way. You could lose a million dollars every time you don't go and vote. So whether they give it to you when you do or you lose it when you don't, the question is you could still lose out if you don't go. So get to the polls, get to your city council meetings, get to your county commissioner meetings and everywhere else and pay attention and know what's going on because the fight is on. And the fight is, I, you know, hey, Biden said it, you know, it's a fight for our soul, not just the nation but our own, because if they can do it to Latinos, they've done it to Asians, they will certainly do it to us. So don't sleep. Don't sit back. Get educated. Be empowered and be engaged. Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Day. I want to thank my guests again tonight. Durham County Sheriff, Sheriff Clarence Burkhead. Sheriff, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days. Be safe, be clear, and be prosperous. I look forward to seeing you soon, sir. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Good night. Until next week, it's Black Politics Today, everybody. And I hope that if you have not registered or gotten your ticket or RSVP, please do so at blackpoliticstoday.com. RSVP for the It's About Us Congressional Black Caucus Awards reception there at the South African Embassy Thursday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, doors are open at 630, so I suggest you get there early uh, because once we reach our capacity, uh, we can't let anybody else in. The embassy has already told us they're cutting and shutting the doors. So get there early and uh, stay late if you want to. I look forward to talking to you, seeing you guys there Thursday night, 7 p.m. Until then. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs>